I like the first book a lot because it always reminds me of how easy it would have been for this not to have happened, for me not to have broken in and to be a frustrated cartoonist. There are plenty of people who are a lot more talented than me who haven't broken in. I think I like the ninth book was the first book, which is, it's called The Lone Hole. And that was the first book where I started to care about the story structure. And I started to think more cinematically. I wrote it to be filmed and it eventually was filmed. And now all of the subsequent books are written in the three-act structure, which was not, it was not even a remote care of mine in the first eight books, which I think is, it, it shows. I wish I put more time into thinking about the structure of the books. Hey there, welcome back to LitMatch, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by either helping you with the literary agent research process, teaching you about publishing, or helping you grow your writing craft with great insights and writing assignments that you apply to your work in progress. The last part that I just shared there is something that I really wanted to bring to this episode. I'm switching up a little bit what I'm doing here with LitMatch. And I actually pulled an interview with bestselling author and creator of the Diary of a Wimp Kid series, Jeff Kinney. This is an interview that I was so fortunate and lucky enough to interview actually back in 2020 for my old podcast, Story Effects, which was a fun podcast, a lighthearted podcast, where I just interviewed people on stories that they loved to emphasize how stories matter to all of us and connect with us on a human level and give us these opportunities to learn how to be more human and empathetic. So slightly different than what I do with Slip Match, but the interview itself with Jeff Kinney was talking about the Diary of Whippy Kids series. And I think that there was so much great content in there that the top writers with their writing journey, which is why I decided to go back to the Jeff Kinney episode. I pulled it, I re-edited it, and I have added as a second part to this episode, a section where I pull out what I take away as the five big writing tips from Jeff Kinney's interview and pair those with five writing assignments to work on your work in progress. There will be two sections to this episode on Limited. It is the first of its kind on this podcast. If you like it, I hope to continue with these where I will interview more authors. And then after that, pair it with the big writing takeaways that I'm going to take from the interview and then give you some writing assignments to go with that. So that's what we're going to do today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and developmental editor who is excited to get into this with you and learn from the writing process and then support you with direction and focus that I hope can help you grow your writing craft. In case you're unfamiliar with who Jeff Kinney is, Jeff Kinney is the author of the best-selling sensation, The Diary of a Wimpy Kid series, which has had a permanent fixture on the USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Publishers Weekly bestseller list. The series has remained on the New York Times bestseller list since the publication of the first book for more than 775 weeks total and more than 350 on the series list. The books are currently available in 82 editions in 67 languages. And since the initial publication in 2007, the series has gone on to win many regional and national awards, 
around the globe, including two Children's Choice Book Awards and six Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards for favorite book. Jeff Kinney was also named one of Time Magazine's most influential people. And he, from my personal experience, he is one of the most humble and kind human beings that I have ever met, which is one of the many reasons why I'm so excited to bring him to you today. Let's get into it. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining me on Story Effect today. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Abigail. I'm excited about this. I know that the story that you'd like to talk about the most today is Diary of Wimpy Kid. So really excited to hear from the creator himself of the Diary of Wimpy Kid series. Can you just give us a brief synopsis about what Wimpy Kid really is about for listeners in case they haven't heard of the story? I think I'm trying to figure out what Wimpy Kid is about myself. I think it started off as one thing and it's become something else. Diary of a Wimpy Kid is, is a story that I started working on in 1998, so a long time ago. And I came up with this idea that I would fictionalize my own childhood. What I wanted to do is kind of take all of the funny moments from my life, put them all in one place, and then put them through the fiction blender. So what you'd have is like a distillation of one person's childhood. And I think at first, the books were, because the book is set in middle school, the first, you know, all the books are kind of set in that middle school world. I think that the book was interpreted as being a story about middle school. And in fact, some other authors came out with lines of books that were called like a middle school and things like that. And it made me think, I was like, I didn't think that I was writing about middle school. I thought I was writing about something else. I thought I was writing childhood. And as I've written more and more books, now I'm up to number 15, I've realized that that's what the books are really meant to be about. They are meant to be an exploration of childhood, every aspect of childhood. And I try to help the reader to see themselves in my stories. So I'm fortunate in that my books are translated lots of different languages around the world. And it brings me a lot of satisfaction when a kid in China or Japan or Brazil can see themselves in my characters. That's kind of, that's a summation of where we are with Wimpy Kid. It centers around a kid named Greg Hepley and his ordinary family. I guess they're sort of a middle-class family. Greg is middle school age. He has an older brother named Roderick and a younger brother named Manny. And I'm just always looking for a different angle to explore. I remember in past conversations with you, you talked about how originally you didn't think that these would be middle grade books. Did you intend them to be a different category? Yeah, I didn't know there really was even such a thing as middle grade as a category. I thought of books as being either children's books or young adult or teen books, and then, you know, books for grownups, and then humor books. I'd go into the bookstore, I'd go straight to the humor section. That's where I could find comic collections like Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side, or books, maybe a book by you know, Jerry Seinfeld or a book full of jokes. I thought The Diary of Wimpy Kid would sit right on those shelves. And so when my publisher took a look at what I wrote, they said, you know, this will be a great children's series. And they said, we'll put it in the category called, I think like friendship issues or something like that. And I was like, boy, this was not what I was going for at all. I was actually writing something for grownups. I was writing something that was like a look back on childhood, sort of like the wonder years or a Christmas story. What I love about that is that you 
then clearly wrote what you needed to write. You wrote these stories based off of what you really wanted to deliver instead of writing for a certain market or category. And they just kind of helped you package that. Can you dive in a little bit as to, I know you said that your childhood is a huge influence in this. Are there any certain stories from your childhood that really are incorporated into the stories themselves? Yeah, I think in a way, all of the stories of my childhood are in these books and then a lot of imagined stories as well. It's hard for me to tell the difference now between what actually happened to me or what happened to the Hefley family. These things have really started to blur together. What I'm, here's a story of something that happened to myself and my friend in real life. And this happened sort of in the first book is that my friend and I decided we were going to roll a giant snowball. We're just going to make just a huge snowman with a base that had a snowball that was like 10 feet tall. And then the middle level would be like eight feet tall or something like that. And we had no appreciation for physics or, or how difficult this would be or how to get that second level of snowball up in the air. So we started to roll the snowball. It got so heavy that we couldn't move it anymore. We had to have like a neighbor, a guy come by and help us move it. And we started pulling up the sod in the yard. So we were just destroying this, this kid's yard, making everything really ugly. And we couldn't get that far. And then what happened was the next day, the kids, my, my friend's younger sister came outside and tried to make a little tiny snowman out of the snow that was remaining in the yard. And my friend, she made this snowman that was only maybe like eight inches tall. And he comes and kicks the head off of the snowman. And so his father came outside with a pickaxe and took our, our disgusting snowball apart. So that's kind of like the fabric that's like raw materials. And then I fashioned that story into something that was just a little bit different than that, you know, but everything goes through a little turn. Then some things go through a really good turns, actually. I remember going to one of your first presentations at Unlikely Story. For listeners, if you aren't aware, Jeff Kinney is the founder and creator, really, of An Unlikely Story, which is this amazing bookstore in Plainville, Massachusetts. So thank you for that. You were having a presentation for a diver wimpy kid, and you gave this story about how Greg basically has to go to swim practice, and then he goes and hides in a bathroom. And then, you know, you had the comic of basically him wrapped up in toilet paper because he's cold. Yeah. And humor is huge in these Wimpy Kids series. You talked about how, what a gift that kids around the globe can relate to Greg's character. And yeah. that's such a beautiful universal aspect, I think, of the humanity that makes really the happy family. Can yeah. you share any experiences of when you've gone to these other countries and talked about the, and what have these kids been sharing about what they connect with? And why do you think that's so amazing and transferable and important to keep in mind when creators are writing stories in any way? Yeah, in a sense, I'm really lucky with my characters because they're drawn on the page and they're so simple. I'm really using the fewest possible lines to draw these recognizable cartoon characters. And because they're so simple, I think kids can project themselves onto these kids. And like, for example, it surprised me really going to China when some of the grownups that I, that, that took me around told me, well, we see these characters as being Chinese characters. And I was like, wow, you know, through, through a certain lens, there aren't a lot of kind of ethnic markers on, on the characters. And, and so they said, yeah, yeah, Greg, Greg's three sprigs of hair. We call that chicken hair. Right. And I was like, it's really funny. And 
and it it was all it was just like great to me to think that kids could see themselves in the characters and sometimes we have to like for example we're working on animation right now and we're going to put a, a color to the characters and that will be the first time we've really done that i don't love that we have to step away from that you know just black and white graphic look but i think colors the characters will make them a lot more rich but in the way that i write i try to avoid a uh, mention of the united states for example i try to keep the stories as generic as possible i want the stories to feel really truthful so that i don't know if kids in china or japan or Brazil create like lemonade stands. Maybe that's very specific to the U.S., but to me, that's representative of something. It's it's representative of a kid trying to be an entrepreneur. And of course, you know, every culture has their different version of that. But I li I like to write as generically as possible. And I think the further into the series I've gone, the more generic I've written. I remember I was reading Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. And there was this really interesting aspect about how cartoons, you have this opportunity to eliminate detail. And the more detail you eliminate, the more transferable and easy it is for you to connect with this cartoon, which, you know, you talk about the simplicity of your graphics, of your comics. And immediately I thought of Diary of a Wimpy Kid because that's exactly how I felt. And Greg can really be relatable to anyone because he's just a kid who's trying to figure out his world and trying to figure out his place in his family and just going about these days. You've talked about how you have 15 of these books now. How do you start to decide what the story is going to be about and how do you continue to maintain that genericness that is really a wonderful, tremendous aspect of Diary of a Wimpy Kid series? Yeah, it gets harder as I go because I think when you write about a certain aspect of childhood, like a road trip, then it, it gets difficult because on the next book, you can't write about a road trip again, or at least not in that way. Or, you know, there are lots of different topics I've sort of covered. And so the selection gets smaller and smaller, which is, I think, how you know when you're reaching the end of your lifespan. I'm hoping I'm not that close, but I can feel it a little bit. When you think of a television show, like a really a big series, say Seinfeld or Friends, those shows tend to have a lifespan of about eight years. And at the end of eight years, they're starting to send the characters to Paris or they're introducing new characters to save their ratings. I've always wondered what the lifespan was for something like my book. And some people may argue I've reached and surpassed that lifespan, which is fine, but it is becoming more evident because I want to always, you know, write about something authentically. So. For example, I could write about the family going to an amusement park. That's a whole thing. You know, that's, that's a whole thing that I haven't really done yet. I haven't fully explored that kind of resort lifestyle. But then can you really do a, let's say they, in another book, they go on a cruise ship or something that has the same kinds of, of markers as that family vacation. It's hard not to overlap yourself too much. Now you've had success with the novels and then you've had success with the movies. So it's interesting when you are looking at this idea of how do you take your comics, your stories in the comics and adapt them for film? Do you find that transition difficult? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm only really confronting it now. My experience with the movies was that I was invited to be a part of the experience and I was, uh, I helped with casting, I helped with some of the writing. I 
contributed jokes. I helped pick the writers, the director, all of that. But I wasn't the writer for most of them. I actually wrote the, the fourth one and then was basically, you know, dismissed and sort of another writer took over, which happens all the time in film writing. You look at the credits on a Pixar film, you'll see there's probably like 20 writers. So that is something that you sort of have to get used to in Hollywood. But now I'm actually work, I'm working on animation for Disney Plus, and this time I am the writer. And I really needed all this time to learn the craft of writing. I wasn't really ready before, and now I'm ready. What I understand about writing, the big difference between writing a screenplay for a diary kid and writing a book is that in the books, there don't, I don't need to really have emotional content or a lot of emotional content. Humor is the priority. Whereas in the films, the emotion is the priority. You have to tell a story that people are going to connect with. If you just put together a series of jokes, it's not going to work on the screen. If you think of it in terms of a darkened theater, somebody paid money to sit in this darkened theater to be entertained by what's on the screen and to be engaged by it. And joke after joke after joke, sometimes that works. There are some movies that, that nail that, but there's usually a really strong emotional backbone. So that's the biggest change I've had to make. And now I fully understand it. So now it's easy to do that. It's easy to get at what the emotional truth is behind one of my books and to convert it. When you talk about emotion, it also brings to my attention the idea of how comics, the character really doesn't have to change from beginning to end. But in a film, that transformation really does need to happen to convey that emotion and see that emotional growth. Is that something that is difficult to approach? If it is difficult to approach, how do you start to even begin to digest what you want to do with transformation? And how do you then execute that in your writing? Yeah, that's something that's difficult with cartoon characters. Cartoon characters, we want them to stay the same, right? In fact, that's, that's the magic of a cartoon character. It's a conceit that Charlie Brown can have 50 first day of, of fourth grades or whatever grade he's in. And, and, and we don't really question, you know, in that same way, Charlie Brown can't really change from year to year. He really, in certain elements of the story, can't change. So he's got to try to kick the football and he doesn't, he doesn't quite make it because Lucy is uh, always pulls it away. However, within a single story, we do have to see some sort of a change. The challenge is to see some sort of change within the character but without altering the rules of that universe. And so if you think of a sitcom like Friends, their rules are sort of the same. Everything needs to sort of reset to zero by the end of the story. But within the story, you know, Chandler can learn his lesson or Joey can learn his lesson. But then in a sense, that those lessons are really forgotten by the next episode. And I think that's what we want from our cartoon characters. When you're looking at cartoons, this aspect of humor does tend to play a pretty loud aspect. I think at least like in sitcoms, right? And in comics, there's humor is a huge part of what really makes that story tick. Was humor something that just naturally what you wanted to write? Or did you start to come into humor the more mature you became as a writer? I, I really wanted to be a newspaper cartoonist. That was my goal, to be like Charles Schultz or Bill Watterson or Gary Larson. I wanted to be on the comics page. That was my goal from... I'd say from my freshman year of college on. And I tried at that. It didn't work out for me. Newspapers were contracting. And truthfully, my work wasn't good enough. I think my writing was good enough, but my artwork definitely wasn't. 
And so I had to pivot, basically. I had to do an exercise in subtraction, which was to take away the thing that felt like the most important thing to me, which was a newspaper. And so I said to myself, okay, now I'm a cartoonist with no newspaper. What can I do with this? And that's how I came up with the idea for Diary of a Wimpy Kid. How did you become an expert in the graphics and as an artist? I went to the University of Maryland and we had a daily newspaper at the time. And it was a great proving ground for me. Every day I had an audience of somewhere between 30 and 50,000 readers. So that was great to have an opportunity to kind of improve and to grow was fantastic and necessary. And then after that, basically, it, but my head, that was my high style in cartooning, which was if you looked at my work compared to other artists who were professional artists, it was different. It was definitely substandard. So for Diary of a Wimpy Kid, I actually went to what I call a lower style or a kind of a more a simplistic approach. And so that made the cartoons better because I really rediscovered that the art of cartooning is the art of simplicity. And so I was able to refine the low style. And then that's, um, that was my way in. And the reason that Greg is a middle schooler is because that's sort of the height of my artistic powers, middle school. That's fun. You talked about how you're going to now start putting color to the characters. Yeah. How did those decisions, first of all, you said you weren't at first really excited about the idea or were you excited about the idea? I felt conflicted about it. Yeah. Conflicted. Yeah. So when you're being conflicted about these decisions, do you get to make all those decisions? Are there other inputs that are coming in saying this is the way that we want to go? How does that even start? as a decision? Well, for one, I'm working with a really diverse team, which is great because, you know, what I, what I say all the time is I want everybody to see themselves in the characters. So that's good. And I, I think that we're all in that mindset now is that you need to really reflect the world around you. In my books, like I said, I, I only use one, one color, which is black. I don't use gradients or anything like that. So it's not really clear what race or ethnicity the characters are, which is the way that I like it. But it's what I always say. And as, as we're starting to create these three-dimensional characters, everybody is in agreement that we should have a really diverse crew around Greg. I'm excited about that. Diversity is needed in publishing. And it's really important to continue to create these diverse communities because that is really the makeup of our world. Yeah. When it comes to casting of films, did you have a similar experience? Yeah, truthfully, the Hefley family was a white family and the, or that that was a casting of the, of the family. They were white. I, I honestly would have been happy with whatever decision they made there. But then, yes, there is diversity in the school and the hallways. And that's reflective of our, our world today. Do you have a favorite out of your series? Oh, gosh. I like the first book a lot because it always reminds me of how easy it would have been for this not to have happened, for me not to have broken in and to be a frustrated cartoonist. There are plenty of people who are a lot more talented than me who haven't broken in. I think I like the ninth book was the first book, which is, it's called The Lone Hole. And that was the first book where I started to care about the story structure. And I started to think more cinematically. I wrote it to be filmed and it eventually was filmed. And now all of the subsequent books are written in the three-act structure, which was not, it was not even a remote care of mine in the first eight books, which I think is 
it, it shows. I wish I put more time into thinking about the structure of the books. There's something beautiful, though, about seeing the evolution of your stories in a way that it is becoming more of a structured story, because I think that really shows how there's growth in anyone as a creative artist. You're continually going to learn new things and put them yeah. into action. I mean, look at the Harry Potter series, right? So it's like Sorcerer Stone is amazing. J.K. Rowling is amazing. But her maturation as an author is evident yeah. as she starts to hit book four, five, six, seven. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that's fun. And I think that the struggle for me is that the first books were so loaded with humor, they weren't burdened with narrative. So now my books are burdened with narrative and there's less room for humor. It's something I need to constantly try to strike that balance, which is not, it's not so easy actually. And I think I succeed at sometimes more than others. Do you have an editor that helps you find that balance a little bit clearer? Yeah, I have an editor who is a good guy. He, he's been working with me from the very beginning. His name is Charlie Kochman. And he's a good, honest critic of my work. And in some ways, I think he struggled a little bit with me becoming more narratively or, you know, narratively focused. But this is just the way the series has gone. Like, I can't just keep doing slice of life stories about middle school because all of the books will feel exactly the same. It'll be hard to remember which one is which. And I actually did do that with book 11. I, I went back to the, to that kind of storytelling. And now when I look at the cover of book 11, which is called Double Down, I, I think, what is that book about? I really can't remember what that book's about. So it's a double-edged sword. It's a continuous process of learning in a yes, way, right? Great. So you're writing this animation series for Disney+. Plus. Can you share a little bit about what that animation is going to give to Disney Plus as a story as a whole and to an audience? Is the intention for it different than the novels or is it just a different medium? Yeah, I think the intention is to, well, first of all, to do animation, which is we, we haven't really done that before. We've done black and white animations in the feature films, but to bring it fully into a cartoon world and then to try to tell the ultimate version of these stories, but to do it in a way that the stories feel classic. That's like our goal. It, it, you know, the stories in Diary of Wimpy Kids, sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small. The story behind the first book is so small that the other kids at Greg's school might not even know that the story happened. And it's hard to tell a story that feels cinematic that is also very small because then you might be looking at like an episode of a sitcom. So we need the stories to really mean something. The first story is, you know, the story about friendships and hopefully we'll get to make the second and third. And those stories will be about siblings and parent-child relationships. And we're trying to tell these stories the way that that really stick, that kids can see themselves in and parents can see themselves in. And the fact that it's airing on Disney Plus has it's going to bring a certain quality to it. Disney is very cognizant of the child parent watching experience in a way that other outlets and platforms wouldn't care about as much. So that is, I, I think that shapes our outlook a little bit. I'm a huge Disney fan. And that's one thing I love about Disney is that I think no matter what age you are, you connect with their stories. I'm growing up with all the 90s classics and there'll be Movies like I've watched Atlantis, watched that as a kid and I'm laughing and then you watch it as an adult and you're laughing at different jokes that you wouldn't have picked up on it as a kid. Yeah. So that's really magical about yeah. what that company is all about. When you're looking at Disney Plus and your medium on there, 
I think that you tend to be very cognitive of the diary of a wimpy kid can really relate to an adult as well. Is that something that you've noticed when you've been traveling with the promotion of your books? Have you noticed that adults are laughing just as much as kids? And if they are, is it at different jokes? Yeah, I think so. I think that what the books have done is it's given kids and their parents common language, if you will. What I like to hear is that a kid will tell the adult, their parent, a, a story snippet from Diary of the Kid. And then the parent will say, when I was a kid, this is what happened to me. This was my version of that. And so I like that, that it's kind of bound kids and grownups in that way. The thing that's tricky with Diary of Wimpy Kid, did write it from the, from the get-go as a book for adults. I wrote it with adults in mind. It's that Greg is an unreliable narrator. He's not only an unreliable narrator, he's, I think he's a three-dimensional kid. He sometimes does good things. He sometimes does bad things. He's not, he's not a very good friend to his, his best friend. And when I was writing it, I felt like it was truthful. I, I feel like this is how kids behave. However, oftentimes when kids read a book or adults read a book to a kid, they're looking for a lesson. They're looking for something that edifies the kid. And they're also looking for role models. Of course, I saw a tweet from Lin-Manuel Miranda. He said, I was reading Diary of a Whoopie Kid to my son. It's like, but Greg's being so mean to rally. And he said, and I had to teach him about an unreliable narrator. And I was like, oh man, you know, it's like, you don't want Lin-Manuel are writing that Greg isn't a nice guy. <laughs> it's like the worst possible. But I think that the, the characters are, or at least Greg is sort of a complicated character. And you're really not meant to, you're not meant to look up to him like the way that you might look up to a Harry Potter. I mean, it's, it's right there at the beginning of the book. Greg says, one day when I'm rich and famous, I'll have this book give to people so that they don't ask me stupid questions all day long. It's like, that's all you need to know about Greg. And it's reflective of a way that kids think and grown-ups think, but they don't often say out loud. So whenever I hear a criticism of Greg as a negative character, I bristle a little bit because I feel like it's, I feel like he is authentically a kid, or at least he's authentic to my experience. Well, I think that's part of what makes him so human because he has so much to learn. Even if he does behave in a certain way, I do think there is authenticity in his behavior. And then it's a matter of, okay, what are his circumstances that he's being put in and what can he learn out of this? So that's kind of the tricky part when you have comics that you don't really want the characters to transform by the end. But then you're going to have these other, as you put more emotion into it, will there be some transformation? Well, I think of Greg as being like a a watered down Larry David in a way. I think about Jim Gaffigan, he's a comedian, you know, he's always... He's always talking about his experiences and and casting himself in a really negative light. You laugh because you recognize your yourself in him. You recognize that you felt the same way, done the same sorts of things. But what's funny about a comedian sort of stands in for the audience. And that's what I like for, for Greg to do, to be a mirror to the audience. How do you think Greg's supporting characters play into his life? You know, I really try to keep as few supporting characters as possible. I try to, I think the challenge of Diary of a Wimpy Kid is to keep that universe really small and to be a really, make it really character-based and to keep churning different situations with these same characters. That's where a TV show or you know, maybe a long-running comic strip starts to lose its edge is when you add more and more and more. 
you know, I saw some ad today for, I was flipping through Comcast available movies and there was a character, it looked like a superhero that I didn't recognize. And I just thought, I don't need to know another origin story behind a superhero. Like we've got plenty. And when we see the familiar superheroes reinterpreted, there's a joy to that, you know, different actors bring different things, different directors bring different qualities to the storytelling. So I like the idea of working with a more limited palette. That's a really interesting comment because I'm immediately thinking about Avengers and how Avengers really in the Marvel universe, at least they really became the centralized group that everyone was drawn back to. Right. So even when you get to movies like Infinity War and Endgame, you still have your core group that people are connecting to. So you have this grandiose world, these in this huge cast, but really we need to centralize it with these characters because this is who you're following. So when you're thinking about keeping Greg's universe small, it's almost like that same idea of if you if you go too big, it's like you have to have big enough that basically there is a world outside of just this family. But if you go too big, you almost lose the personal connections. Yeah, I think so, too. And then I'm I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because I just started doing books from Rowley Jefferson's perspective. And so I have Rowley in it's called Rowley Jefferson's Awesome Friendly Adventure. He's actually telling a story where he, where there are a bunch of characters. It's a, it's a fantasy story and he is there. More is better. And I think what I could see myself doing down the line is taking those characters and making stories about them. And it would be just fun to keep spinning that off and you know, spinning it into infinity. When you came to the idea of this character of Rally, how did you start to form who he was going to be in Greg's life and in his own life? Rally was really created as a counterpoint to Greg. There's qualities that he has that are the same as some friends that I've had, but really he was meant to be you know, the counterpoint in many different ways, physically, emotionally, in in terms of maturity. What I really like about Rowley is that he is a a kid who unironically likes being a kid. He likes birthday parties and all these kinds of things. And, you know, he would probably be the kind of kid who would keep taking a bath up till age like 12 or 13 instead of a shower. And Greg's a kid who's always looking for that next step. He doesn't like being trapped in a kid's body. He doesn't really have any power at the age in which he is. So he, he would, you know, if he can see a PG movie, he wants to see a PG 13 movie. If he can see that, then he wants to see an R rated movie, you know? So he's just, he's a lot like I was as a kid, but I like the idea that there's this character that's sort of the opposite. of. I like having counterparts too, just because it really starts to fill a void, I think, or an emptiness if you don't have both sets of the personalities, right? It's like, yeah. you know, as a as humanity, we work better when we work with each other because we bring such a plethora of personalities and colors to the table, right? So going back to the experience between parent and child and how that while the child might have a connection to this certain experience, a parent can say, in my life, it was done more this way. Do you yeah. have any stories in particular that really stood out to you that really emphasized that beauty of that connection? Oh boy, that's a good question. I think, you know, my father, what he's always been really good about is, is bringing back, he has a really good recall of his own childhood. And I'm trying to think of a story that might have been really funny. He, like he had this friend, his name was Bill Platt. 
and just the names of his characters are always like, there was a guy named Timothy Thomas and, you know, the names are always just sound like cartoon characters to begin with. So I think in a way, a lot of the DNA of Diary of a Kid comes from the experience of my father telling me stories about his own growing up. And I'm sort of doing that in a fictional sort of way. When you've gone and you've traveled and, you know, gone on your book tours and everything, and you have all these experiences with all these different families and all these different children, do you think they're connecting not just families, but cultures and communities? Good question. I don't know if Dire of Wimpy Kid bridges communities or, or cultures. Like, I'm the one who gets to see that. Like, when we bring all of our publishers together, that's when I really get to see how we're all working on this same thing. But I think everybody operates within their silos. When Dire of Wimpy Kid was at the, the height of its publication, right around the sixth or seventh book, we just had the movies come out and, and all of that. I saw pictures of kids. It was the day of the Scholastic Book Fair and every kid on the bus was reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid. You know, it's, it's very cool to, to reach that kind of cultural moment. There are a lot more options out there, a lot more comics options and in different genres. It's harder and harder as, as people to, to have kind of a common experience with kind of subdivided experiences. So I, I guess. I don't know if I have a good answer to your question other than to say there was a time when it was like that and maybe it's a little bit less now, but it's still pretty cool that these kids are, you know, my son will go to college and meet some other kid and probably that other kid has read Diary So that's pretty That makes me think about Winnie the Pooh in a way. I remember watching Christopher Robin, which was actually a really sad movie when you learn about the real life of A.E. Milne, but it was kind of this really cool thing where at the end, Christopher Robbins talking about how you know, he went off, the son of A.E. Milnes, he went off to fight in the war and he was in the trenches and the guy next to him started singing Winnie the Pooh song. Uh. And it was kind of one of those things where he said he had this moment where he was like, I didn't understand why he was singing that song when it was my song. <laughs> but then I started to think, Everyone knows the right. song. So it, be, it really became this really cool part of it. there was this greater connection because yeah. of story, yeah. which is really beautiful. And I think a core essence of what makes the human condition, we're all drawn to yeah. these certain emotions and these experiences because they are universal. They're part of life. They're part of what yeah. we go through. Do you think that there are any messages that you hope families, kids take out of the Diary of Wimpy Kids series? It's a good question. I really don't try to bake in a lot of lessons into my book purposefully. At the same time, what I like is that kids are, the message that they're getting is that reading is satisfying and that to, to open a book and close the cover you have a feeling of accomplishment. And so I do like that. I also, I like the smallness of the stories because I feel like people, kids reading my stories might feel like they can achieve this as well. And the stories are sort of ordinary. Greg is not a superhero. He's not divine in some way. His parents aren't gods or, or wizards or anything like that. He's just an ordinary kid. And so when I go to schools, especially when I go to Title I schools, like really encourage the kids to tell their own stories. There's an audience for all sorts of different stories and different life experiences. So I hope that the books do inspire some kids to pick up the pen and they might not write their stories exactly like Diary of what we get, but maybe they'll, maybe they'll remember the funny parts of life. 
That's something I'm personally passionate about because as a teacher, when I was teaching creative writing in film, it was really important to me that there was this curiosity in learning. There was this curiosity in exploring their voices. And I think by experiencing stories that they're really drawn to, they are encouraged to start using their own voice to tell their own. So thank you for that, because that's wonderful to hear just the amount of people who are picking up a book and opening it. That's huge. You know, like we need to continue to really encourage this idea of finding stories that connect outside of the classroom and inside of the classroom. Getting someone excited about reading a story is, is marvelous. Right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. You know, at the end of every podcast, I do like to do a final three. Essentially, what I do is I ask, what's a favorite quote that comes from the stories that we've talked about today? Why do you choose that as your favorite quote? And how do you think listeners can take the messages in that quote or the meaning of that quote and apply it into their lives? And this can be kind of hard because I know you have 15 books out there. But if you have so if you have others you want to throw in there, you can. But if you have one, go for it. (laughs) Well, is it a favorite quote from, from my book? It can be really, I guess, from any story. If you want to go into a, a different quote, that's fine too. Oh, okay. I'm going to give you a, a quote that my wife gave me. My wife is, you know, she, she doesn't fashion herself a comedian, but she said un, unironically, I'm pretty much one of the best people I know. And I, I use that in Diary of Wimpy Kid. And I just think it's a funny line. It's not an inspiring quote, but there's a funny story behind it is that, you know, I have Greg saying this, it's meant to be audacious. And so I was in Greece recently and kids were giving a a presentation on uh, it, which included my biography and the media was there. And so they put, they put my face up on the screen and they said, they were going on and they said, and that this is why Jeff Kinney said, and it shows a quote, I am pretty much the best person I know. And it just like, first of all, I was like, I, yeah, I didn't say that Greg said it and it was meant to be funny and obnoxious, but this quote next to my face just sat up on the screen for like the next 15 minutes as they moved on to other things. So that's, again, I'm not answering the question in the spirit that you're asking, but that's, that's a pretty funny one. No, I love that though, because it it reinforces the idea of how funny moments can be and how funny experiencing just like, you know, experiences by um, basically just, I guess, stories within the Greg Halfway series, they, yeah. they really do create some of these like, oh my gosh, what's happening in this type of moment experience. And so it's, it's great to find humor in life. You know, it's yeah. really important to find humor in life. But, yeah. All right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, and then I'll just say, well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on Story Effect. I am so humbled and excited to have you here and I can't wait to share you with listeners. Well, thanks so much, Abigail. You've been a friend to me and I appreciate what you're doing for your listeners out there. Thank you very much and much success. Hey, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed the first part of this new type of episode that I'm trying out where I will interview an author. In this case, it was the best-selling author and the creator of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Jeff Kinney. I did mention in the introduction of the episode, it was an old interview that I actually recorded for my first podcast called Story Effect, where I talked to writers about the types of books that inspired them or that they really love. And it wasn't always just writers that I was talking to, it was a variety of people. But Jeff Kinney's interview, I thought, was really was really valuable for writers as well, which is why I have repackaged it and edited it for you for LitMatch. 
And now for the second half of this episode, something that I'm trying to incorporate to help writers with the writing craft is to pull out five of the big points that the author makes about the writing craft in the interview and discuss this a bit more here as a book coach while also working as your teacher mentor and throwing out some writing assignments for you to try. If you ever want to comment or send me one of your writing assignments, that would be fun. You can do that at abigailkperry at gmail.com. So we will get into this. So I have pulled out five essential writing tips and then created five writing assignments to go one with each tip for this episode. The first writing tip that I pulled out from Jeff Kinney's episode was find inspiration from real events and then fictionalize them for fiction. Yes, I do specialize in fiction, so I have a lot about fiction when it comes to the writing craft. That's where my expertise is. However, I also have literary agent interviews that deal with nonfiction because I understand the importance of nonfiction writing as well. When I do these writing assignments, they will be focused on fiction because that is what I specialize in and what I'm educated in and what I feel best to mentor and teach you about. But if these work to help you with nonfiction in some way, awesome. I hope that they do. If nothing else, maybe this is a fun way to explore your fiction side. That being said, that idea, point one, find inspiration from real events and then fictionalize them for fiction. My thought about this goes back to actually my sophomore year of spring semester of college. I went to Syracuse as I knew how School of Public Communications. My bachelor's degree was in TV, radio, and film. And this course is what first inspired me to actually get in the writer's seat and start doing the writing work myself. It was the introduction to screenwriting course. My professor, Professor Coriel, wonderful professor, encouraged us in the beginning because script is so dialogue heavy to really start to observe people out and about in the world because that's how we're going to pick up on a variety of conversations. And it was always this kind of fun line when I was teaching creative writing and film to my high school students, I'd do the same thing and say, hey, go out and listen to different conversations, be aware, watch how mannerisms and how different people move and everything like that without being creepy, right? We're not trying to be stalkers, but it is really important for writers to be observant of their surroundings because the world, of course, is made of all different types of people and how we respond to situations in our external circumstances speaks to who we are as a character and maybe how we're moving forward in life, just as how characters can move forward in their stories. The writing assignment that I'm going to give you for this tip is exactly what Professor Coriel told me to do way back many years ago now. And he said that you needed to go out for the day and try to pick up on one conversation. I'm going to push you a little bit further and say, I'd like you to pick up on one conversation and journal down one conversation, if you can, per beat them. That either makes you laugh, cry, or cringe. So those are my three options for it. Where are good places to do this? You can get on a bus. Uh, you can go into a grocery store and you can go into a Target. Basically, any type of store. I, it also, I think it's, you know, it's extra bonus points if the setting that you choose makes sense for your work in progress. Obviously, that doesn't mean go ahead and go do something dangerous or harmful in any way to yourself or others. 
But if there is something that is realistic for you to do and that is going to keep your safety in mind, then why not try it? Maybe that means you're going to a playground and you're, of course, still paying attention to your child, but paying also listening with near maybe about what, what some other parents said and how they're talking to their children. Maybe you're going to a family dinner and you're just picking up on some family dinner dialogue, stuff like that. I know that this, this brain segment is leaning towards dialogue focused, but I think that what's really cool about this assignment is that while you're making these observations, you have to keep in mind that, of course, what's being said could lead yourself to great content for humor or for the big feels in some way with that, with that or, you know, some cringeworthy material for whatever that dialogue is. At the same time, what's not said is just as valuable as what is said. Most people don't say everything that's on their mind. And reading body language could be essential to helping you define who your character is and how they react or what they're going through psychologically within their external surroundings. What you have to do after all of that is you take real dialogue that you might have taken or real interactions. You can journal about that if dialogue is appealing to you. And then you have to do the second half of it, fictionalize it. And ideally, what you're looking for is a situation that could be dramatized for your story in a way that makes sense. If you can't find something of that today and it just is something that's going to work as a great writing assignment for practice, there's no harm in that. But if you can, try to find something that would work as inspiration for a fictionalized moment in your story. And you have to really ask yourself why that fictionalized moment is going to move your story forward. If it doesn't move your story forward, if it doesn't put your protagonist in a crisis decision that makes sense, it's better as writing practice. You don't want to just include it just because I gave you this writing assignment. However, this writing assignment can help you practice some good skill sets that you can have to help you write a broader cast and have some fun in the experience. The second big tip that I take out of Jeff Kinney's episode is develop characters who are human and relatable for a general audience. This came in about seven minute mark. And essentially what I encourage you to do here, what I want to talk about more here, when you're developing characters who are human and relatable for a general audience, immediately some writers might go into this, oh no, but my character has to be, is the unique factor of my story. They have to be completely unoriginal and extraordinary in their own way. I can't have someone who is relatable in every circumstance because they have to be unique and they have to be special. And all of that is true, right? Like your characters do need to be unique. We're, we do not want to rewrite the same character for your stories. I And I especially think that out of all of the elements of stories that you can change, character is the one that should be changing the most. Because I have said this in many episodes before, but I love the stories where character drives plot. And character and plot are neck and neck of importance, but character takes a little bit more precedence because if we don't love the character, then we won't care what happens to them. That being said, although characters need to be unique for a story, it's important that they can connect to a wide audience. And this is the relatability factor, because this means that if you don't have that relatability factor that can connect to an audience your audience is going to have trouble caring about them and following them too. Writers and readers in general pick up a book because they're looking for an emotional experience. They want to vicariously through a protagonist or multiple characters undergo an emotional experience 
that speaks a lot to the type of genres that they like to read. If you're reading an action story, a core emotion might be excitement that you're going for. If you're reading a coming of age story, a lot of the times we're looking for a cathartic release, something that's satisfying at the end. If you're moving towards a prescriptive tale. If you're going to a crime novel, I'm usually looking for this core emotion of justice. So there are definitely defining emotions that we're looking for within an experience in the stories and the characters that are really driving those stories need to have a uniqueness to them, but also they need to be relatable. For instance, Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, one of my favorites. Not everyone is going to, if anyone is going to live in a dystopian world where they're faced with a game that is a fight to the death and also be someone who is starving and has to provide for their family. Those are some of the key features that make Katniss who she is and defines the type of personality and characteristics that she really has. At the same time, Katniss's vulnerabilities and her and the characteristics that make her likable, not only within her world, but to the readers themselves, are what we can connect with. Even if you haven't had an experience where your sister has been drawn into the games and you need to decide if you're going to volunteer to take her place in order to save her life or not, you can imagine that experience of that emotion of caring for someone so much that your life was not as valuable as saving theirs. And that's something that you can viscerally imagine that even if you haven't gone through that, which is that relatability factor. At the same time, Katniss has things like she refuses to allow society to define her voice. She's constantly trying to play the scheme of one-upping them. Someone who feels severe injustices from society, we can understand that if you haven't experienced it yourself, you can imagine it. And another thing about Katniss is that she, of course, is dealing with her love triangle, can imagine that idea of relatability of being pinned between two lumps and not sure who you want to go with. And she also is someone who is constantly defending small and weak. So you can imagine yourself in that position too. It goes back into the justice type of feeling, but feeling like it's your moral responsibility to protect those who stand less of a chance of defending themselves. And then above all of that, Katniss, in everything that she faces, is terrified. She feels great responsibility to lead in a way that she never asked for it, yet understands that if she doesn't lead, there could be great destruction to innocent lives. And despite all of her fear, she continually shows up and displays great courage. And who doesn't love a hero who can display courage in the face of great insurmountable fear and evil? So again, the tip for that was to develop characters who are human and relatable for a general audience. And your writing assignment for this tip is to look at your protagonist or another supporting character. And I want you to write one paragraph about what makes that character unique for the story. And then a second paragraph about the general reader who could connect to this character and why. So think of it this way. The first paragraph when you're writing about why they're unique to the story Really focus on the unlikely factor. And what I say by that, when you have a logline in your story, there should be an unlikely hero factor or a sense of irony to the character, which is what makes them special for the story. It's really what makes them the protagonist. The easiest example that I like to use for this is that Marlin is a timid clownfish who has to cross the Pacific Ocean in order to save his son in Finding Nemo. 
And timid is the unlikely factor there because he's this small, tiny, timid, scared clownfish whisked across the great big Pacific Ocean, which of course is inevitably full of dangers that he's never wanted to face, but will face out of love for his son in desperation to get his son back. So even just in that log line, what can I pitch there? The unlikely factor, the unique factor is the timid clownfish. So something that Erlen, and you could dig deep into that, right? We could explain why Marlin is timid, what has put him in that position, leading back to the opening scene that deals with the barracuda and the loss of his wife and all of his children other than Nemo. And then the relatable factor is that he loves his son and he would do anything, even against his greatest fears, he would face those fears in order to save his son. You hear a little bit about that. The third writing tip that I took out of Jeff Kinney's interview is to show how a character changes from beginning to end without altering the rules of the universe. In other words, every story is about change. And that change is ingrained in the character arc. Yes, I know there are stories where there are. And actually, like even in this episode with Jeff Kinney, with comics in particular, characters don't change. And that was one of the one of the factors that Jeff Kinney actually said is challenging for him, the adaptions in the film versus the comics. These in comics, part of the magic of a character in a comic is that they don't change. That comes, there are subtle changes, usually in a series, a character will change, but there are common characteristics that a character will repeat because that's what you know, often the part or the joke for the show. In fiction, though, we really do need to see character change. When I worked as a creative production intern at Overbrook Entertainment back in college, scripts, you can read scripts faster than novels, right? So I could look at page one when I was doing script coverage. I could look at page one and I could look at the last page of the script. Pretty quickly, I could determine through context clues if that character had changed or not. And if the character hadn't changed, it was kind of a red flag. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to read the script because, of course, I need to find out for sure. But it's likely that you can even kind of assume based on that, if there's going to be enough growth in the story, because, again, readers go for an emotional experience. The emotional experience is undergone if the character is changed based on how they respond to external circumstances. The exception to this would be if there was a cautionary tale and the character doesn't end up in a good situation because they haven't changed, or if this is more of a status admiration type of story and maybe the character hasn't changed, but their situation has changed. And most importantly, the characters around them have changed. So that's kind of a big thing you can look for is looking at the bookends of your book in your first chapter. What's going on there? Where's your character at in a mental state, right? And at the last chapter, how have they changed? That change actually should define if your story is going to be cautionary because there's a lack of change or prescriptive because there was a change. For your writing assignment for this tip, I would like you to define your protagonist's black and white view in the first chapter of your book. This means that if you do something like Save the Cat, I forget exactly what tip it is now, but there's one that's called Being Stated. And I used to always tell my students in high school that the character wouldn't understand this theme or wouldn't believe this theme when a supporting character says it to them. And if that helps you in any way, basically a supporting character would state the point of the story. For example, in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, he doesn't believe that he is the boy who lives. There's nothing special about him. By the end of that story, he needs to have 
in order to have survived against his face with Voldemort, he needs to embrace his destiny as simply lived and overcome that art. Looking at those ideas, look, consider yourself on how, how there is growth in the character and to help you with that, define what maybe the theme stated is or define what the black and white view for the protagonist is and then jump to your last chapter and define how that viewpoint has changed. If it hasn't changed, we're probably ending in a negative light. So you can also explain why that character's viewpoint didn't change and what happened to them. If their viewpoint doesn't change, the character will most likely not defeat their main antagonist in the end. And they're also probably not going to achieve the, the story's big picture goal or want. Now that want or goal might change depending on the events of the story. But ultimately, the stakes are either going to be saved or destroyed by the end of the story based on the character's ability to have this change in view and worldview. Another way to examine this in story, often you'll see chunks of dialogue or an event that has dialogue in a very similar situation and how the character speaks in that conversation or in that circumstance has changed from beginning to end. And it might not, you know, it might not be page one in the last scene, but ultimately probably in somewhere in act one and somewhere in act two part, very close to the end of act two or act three, the conversation and how the protagonist responds to the situation and participates in that conversation has changed. To explain this, the main character in the house in Cerulean Sea, at the very beginning, he needs to go to this board that basically is in charge of running these orphanages for special individuals. And he's a yes man. And he follows through and he's been told what to do. And they picked him specifically for this reason because they know that he will just follow instructions and flatly will just follow those. By the end of the story, that character needs to go to the board again. But how he participates in the conversation is extremely different and is a perfect example of how he has changed as a character because of his experiences and relationships that he's built around the individuals, the children, and the headmaster. I don't think headmaster is the right word, but basically the, the one in charge of this orphanage. Amazing book, T.J. Clune, House in the Chilean Sea. Definitely recommend that you check that out. The fourth writing tip that I pulled from Jeff Kinney's interview is applying three-act structure. And I do really believe in three-act structure. If you don't want to define it as acts, consider it beginning, middle, and end. I know that there are usually multiple acts. So sometimes the word acts, people fester on a bit. And I'd say, just call it beginning, middle, and ends. Then I like to say three acts. It's just ingrained in, in what I have come from. But I understand that basically there's a beginning, there's a middle, and then an end. So that's how stories work. Really quick, easy, applicable tip that I like to share on it. Defining a pure three-act structure as very bare bones is holding up is a, you know, quote-unquote formula that I got from Gabriela Pereira. She is the founder of DIY MFA. I saw her speak in a 2015 Writer's Digest conference, and she did this presentation on this universal story. And it is so straightforward, and I just loved it and have always loved it. Share it with everyone I can. It goes like this, three acts plus two big decisions equals one universal story. So the key here are those two big decisions. And those two big decisions, decision one is the point of no return decision. 
That decision is when a character needs to basically decide if they're going to take on their call to adventure or not. That will move them from act one to act two or the beginning to the middle. And then decision number two is called the dark night of the soul decision, which is when a character needs to make a decision at their absolute lowest moment at the very end of act two. It seems like the worst has happened in this time and how the character responds to that. They need to decide if they're going to quit, move on, or take a new direction. If they're a protagonist, they're not going to quit because that would be the end of the story, right? They might go on and just continue to persist, or they might need to take a new direction in how they're approaching their final battle and how they're going to take out their antagonist. So ultimately, these two big decisions determine movement from beginning to middle or act one to act two and act two to act three or middle to the ending. Again, three acts plus two big decisions equals one universal story. If you don't have that bare bones formula, you don't have probably have a three act structure. There is another major decision that I really value at the midpoint, which is called the mirror moment decision. I will talk about that in another episode. I love midpoints, but they're hugely important when defining outlines and it deserves its whole own episode. So we'll stick to this for a quick assignment today. But for your writing assignment for that part, I would like you to define the crisis that your protagonist faces in their point of no return decision scene and their dark night of the soul scene and describe how they make their decision and act on it. If you can answer that, you probably have a pretty clear idea of how stakes drastically change and the plot drastically changes and the character changes because they drive the plot from F1 to F2, F2 to F3, or beginnings middle and middle to end. Fifth and final writing tip that I'd like to pull from Jeff Kinney's episode is create a cast of various personalities. This one's really important. And especially if you're writing first person, you would know this right away because characters need to have different voices. You can't just write the same character over and over and over again. If they don't have a variety of characteristics and personalities, you're setting yourself up for no potential for conflict because characters, if they are just told everything is good and dandy and the way they're thinking or in the way that they behave or interact with others, there's no reason for them to change. It's really important to get a variety of personalities in your story. And that doesn't mean you need this huge, grandiose cast. You could have a very small cast. You could have a very small universe. At the same time, everything within that cast should have a variety of personalities and behaviors and, and ways of how they approach situations. Think about how drastically different the story would be and how actually these characters would fail if Hermione wasn't super logical, competent, and intelligent, right? Harry and Ron don't survive without Hermione. He just stopped. And actually, out of the trio, and he has a little side note, you know, odd numbers are a fun thing to deal with because whenever you have an odd number in a cast, there's more potential for conflicts. But basically, all the characters, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, in their triangle are really important, especially when it comes to the Deathly Hallows book. And each of them has something that special that they each need to bring to the table in order to help Harry get to his final moment of battling, defeating Voldemort. Now, what I've mentioned there is also, in, in that example, I have mentioned allies. And a cast also has, of course, enemies. Thinking along the lines that might be a little bit more obvious to show difference in characteristics between heroes and villains, 
At the same time, you might have heroes and villains that are actually very similar. And when you look at something like, I mean, I'll just keep going Harry Potter because I love it, but you have Harry and Voldemort, and this is like the prime example of this, right? So Harry and Voldemort are identical in a lot of ways, but Harry makes different decisions than Voldemort does. Voldemort is power hungry and fears death, and Harry actually embraces death in order to save those he loves. So you can see how that can automatically cause a direct conflict that's engaging and interesting. Keep in mind that regardless of what you have, whenever you have a supporting cast in any way, people who are helpers or supporting characters that are beneficial to your protagonist's inner circle can also and absolutely do work as antagonists to the protagonist on a scene-by-scene level because all you have to do in order to be an antagonist is have a conflict or have a disagreement in some way with that protagonist. In romance novels, the lovers are antagonists of one another. They're the, the main antagonists and the main protagonists of each other. It's the whole thing of will they or won't they. Keep that in mind. To bring this all together, your writing assignment for this creating a cast of various personalities is to start small. I want you to take an odd number, three or five, let's go with three to make it even easier, and take a protagonist first and define the number one positive characteristic of them the number one weakness of them, and then a characteristic that can be considered a strength or a weakness. Then I want you to take one of the major supporting characters and one of the major enemies of that protagonist and do the same thing. Repeat that assignment. Once you have all those, I'd like you to place, make up a situation where each of them is going to want something. So we'll say, I'd like you to do this so it's beneficial to your work your work in progress. So if that comes to mind right away when I say this, go for it. As like a very bare bones example, we'll say they're all placed in a class assignment and they're told that they need to go find some sort of research to answer a big question that is placed on the board. Now, all of the characters are likely going to believe that they need to find a different type of research or go about that way of researching whatever the answer is that they need to solve in a different way if you have successfully created different personalities for these characters. There might be similar approaches, but probably ultimately everyone is going to approach this in a different way. At the same time, create some conflict or friction between the characters themselves. But Basically, it's just to kind of show that can you write the same scene from different characters' perspectives? There's going to be something interesting and different about how each of those characters approaches the situation at hand. If it feels too similar and repetitive, it's time to shake it up and find out how of creating personalities and characteristics that are more variety. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean that your characters and your supporting cast and cast in general have to be an exact opposites or have to be drastically different in every single way. Harry and Ron, again, we'll just keep going back to Harry Potter because they love it, so why not? Harry and Ron are extremely similar in many ways. That's part of the reason why they are so compatible with one another and best friends. But they also have defining differences that change how they approach different situations and in several matters actually save each other's lives because of that. All right, those are the five big writing tips that I pulled from Jeff Kinney's interview, along with five writing assignments for you to try now and put to practice and ideally put them into practice in your work in progress. And that also brings us to the end of this Lit Match episode that is 
trying something different, having an offer interview and having some writing assignments that you can start to tackle at the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, I'd love to hear from you. If you didn't, I'd love to hear what didn't work for you so I can continue to improve the content and make sure that everything that I'm doing is helping writers improve their writing craft, understand the publishing business more, or helping them with their literary research process. Of course, this episode was more focused on writing craft. Regardless, I'd love to hear from you. And if you do have the time, I've said this many times before, but I do so genuinely appreciate if you can take two, three quick minutes to rate and review the show. When you do this, this gives me the best chance at reaching more writers like you who want to grow their craft or learn more about the publishing business or literary agent research process. I can't do it without you. And I'm so grateful for everyone who does rate and review it and emails me. It means so much. It gives me more and more enthusiasm to continue to create great content for you. Please do let me know how your writing process is going how the query process is going, no matter where you are in that process, if you're in the trenches, if you're in revisions, if you're just starting on page one, persevere and hold on to your passion. What you're doing with your story matters. And I'm so proud of you. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your writing and business career and celebrate your book when it comes out. 